Hello, and welcome to Unbabbled, a podcast that navigates the world of special education, communication delays, and learning differences. We are your hosts, Stephanie Landis and Meredith Crummel, and we're certified speech-language pathologists who spend our days at the parish school in Houston, helping children find their voices and connect with the world around them. In this episode, we speak with pediatrician Dr. Marshall Lerman. Dr. Lerman received his medical degree from the University of Texas Medical School at Houston and completed his pediatric residency training at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. He currently works at Booten and Saverick Pediatric Associates in Houston. We sat down with Marshall to discuss a variety of topics, ranging from tips on finding a pediatrician that fits your family, to ways to bring up concerns, to what parents can expect when bringing up those concerns with their doctor. Throughout the episode, Marshall provides information to empower parents to be strong advocates for their children. Welcome. We're very excited to have Dr. Lerman here talking to us today as a pediatrician. Personally, I'm very excited to chat with you, and I think it'll be great for all of our listeners. So welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, I want to start off just giving everybody a little bit of a chance to get to know you. What got you into wanting to be a pediatrician? You have so many options when you're in med school. Great question. So actually, uh, I'm a recovering lawyer um, (laughs) who's always loved children. And when I was practicing law, I did some um, pro bono work, free work for children that were wards of the state of Texas in adoption proceedings. And I just loved kids. Then I came over actually to where my wife worked, the parish school, and she was working with groups of three to five-year-olds, and they were sitting there and she said, does anybody know who this is? And they all in unison screamed, your daddy! (laughs) Amy's very uh, short, um, and she's very awesome. So anyway, I love kids, and I just knew I wanted to be a pediatrician. I love working with parents and their kids. Fantastic. That's awesome. That's so great. So one of the things we've been talking about with so many of our other guests is when we encourage them to, when they have concerns, is the first step is to go and see their pediatrician. However, then we don't give them the advice of what do you then say to your pediatrician? Do you have any advice for parents on how to bring up concerns? I think it's very important to go see your pediatrician in these instances because the pediatrician is the one who's looking at the holistic view of the kid. For parents, I would say to be honest. I mean, as a parent, you know your child better than anyone else. And so if you have a concern, I think it's very uh, appropriate to be honest and straightforward on what your concern is. If you don't want your child to hear what your concern is, for instance, you can say you want to speak or let the nurse know you want to speak to the pediatrician alone before the appointment that way, and that can guide you. But I would say be very forthright. Tell the pediatrician what you're thinking. Good pediatricians are listeners, and that's what I would do. That's great advice to speak to your pediatrician without your child in the room. That was actually going to be one of my questions. Is is it common to ask? Because my child is getting older and, you know, I never want to say anything in front of her for her to then internalize that. So it's wonderful to know that that is an option. Absolutely. That's an option. And you just let the nurse uh, know beforehand or when the doctor comes and say, hey, can I speak to you for a second? And we go into a different room, and if we then want to bring it up in front of the child, I speak to the parent how they would like to do that. But yes, absolutely. Pediatricians would prefer that. So when a parent brings concerns up with you as a pediatrician, what types of responses might parents hear from you? Do we get referrals out, or you know, what should we be looking for in our answers? So I'd say every kid is is unique, but there are sort of milestones, baseline milestones that we want 
all kids of a certain age to meet. So the first thing I would do would be to evaluate whether those milestones are being met. Some of them are verbal, some of them are social, some of them are cognitive, some of them are gross motor. And so that would be the first thing we look at, and that should be done at every well-child exam once a year. At that point, I would then tell the parent, so if the parent was concerned about a speech delay, I either do or don't think it's present, um, taking into account that there's ranges of normal. And I would either say, I think at this time, we should refer to something like ECI, speech therapy, occupational therapy, mm-hmm. or we monitor this and I give parents exercises to, to work on, to watch. And if need be, we follow up closer. And early childhood, the ECI is early childhood ed- Yeah, intervention, intervention, excuse me, yes. And so early childhood intervention is great. And I actually learned that through my wife. They go out either to the the family's home or oftentimes they'll go into the school Mm -hmm. and they do an independent evaluation, whether it's a speech therapist, an occupational therapist, a physical therapist, about whether services are needed. And if they're needed, then I believe it's up till age three, they will set that up uh, however often necessary. And then we'll monitor the progress for that. Right. And that's a, a service that is done through the state that's free of charge to families? Yes. 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 And then after three, they, they move into their school districts, Correct. which is good for parents to yes. know as well. And uh, if a kid is in school or in, in a grade level, I always tell parents if they're concerned, especially about, let's say, learning disabilities or something like that, um, that they need to speak to the school and request that the school does their independent testing. If it's a public school, usually that's done. If it's a private school, there are methods as well to do that because I think being evaluated in two environments is good. Mm-hmm. Are there other types of doctors that you would refer to if a ch- parent has like global concerns? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, pediatric neurology would be one that if a, if a child is having any um, sort of brain or uh, neurologic injuries or, or difficulties, um, ENT is wonderful, especially mm-hmm. with speech delays. I would uh, every child who has a speech delay or pediatricians think so should be tested by an audiologist mm-hmm. to make sure first hearing is not the issue. Mm-hmm. And then I'm a, I so let me say for me, if a parent is concerned, I'm concerned. And okay. so, you know, if a parent comes in and I say I don't think something's present. If a parent is still worried about it, then I think it's reasonable to either ask for a second opinion or to continue advocating for your child to see someone else within the practice and if you need to go elsewhere. But what I wanted to say is for me, if a parent is concerned, I'm concerned. So if I'm seeing global issues or I'm having concerns on on a higher level than individual, whether it's speech or gross motor or other issues, then I will refer to a developmental pediatrician who are uh, the experts in making um, certain diagnoses that can get kids the help they need and the type of services that they need. And can you give a little bit, you touched on it a little bit, the difference between like your general pediatrician and a developmental pediatrician? So all physicians go to medical school for four years Mm -hmm. and then do a residency. So if you're a general pediatrician, you've done three years in general pediatrics, meaning you're getting all the basics you need to know about the holistic child. Other subspecialists, such as um, a pediatric neurologist, for instance, studies the brain and, and neurons. They're still a pediatrician, but then they branch off and do an extra fellowship year, which is either two to th- or three years to learn a specialty. So developmental pediatricians, as far as I know, do their residency, and then they do a three-year fellowship, which means three extra years just devoted to development, okay, mm-hmm. including autism spectrum disorder, other issues. They have the training required to make specific diagnosis related Mm -hmm. to development. Yeah. 
So they're uh, focusing on that instead of, you know, everyday rashes or fevers or other sicknesses. Yes, great. Yes, exactly. (laughs) That is what they were doing. And that's all they're doing, which makes them more skilled because they're seeing a lot of it. I always liken it to, say, a child breaks their arm or leg. Mm -hmm. I can certainly get an x-ray, diagnose it, and I actually did urgent care. I could probably splint it. But most pediatricians will then refer to an orthopedist, Mm -hmm. meaning they are are trained to deal with bones. Um, Their rheumatologists are trained to to deal with joints. Pediatricians manage, it's kind of like the quarterback, managing everything. But it's very important that if your child has a need that they are being referred to a subspecialist. And as a parent, if you think that's necessary, you advocate for that. So what kind of red flags would um, alert you that maybe you should refer to a developmental pediatrician? So there are usually a constellation of symptoms. For instance, a child is behind verbally, not speaking perhaps not making eye contact, perhaps acting out and getting very frustrated at home and in school, perhaps they're not yet walking or crawling, or Mm -hmm. a different scenario would be perhaps they were doing all these things and then they stop. It's important to remember that there are uh, broad ranges of normal and certain things such as walking on your toes, while not normal, is not necessarily abnormal. I have flat feet. Not everybody has it. It doesn't affect me in any way. But when you get essentially walking on your toes, no eye contact, difficulty in social situations, grade suffering, very stringent, then I start to see more of a global picture. Is this possibly something that we should refer to developmental pediatrician for to get a better view? You've mentioned before parents continuing to advocate for themselves. Is there, are there certain phrases or ways parents can word things that make it seem more of a higher concern on your end. I know that for me myself, I even sometimes going into the pediatrician feel a little worried bringing concerns up. So I'm like, oh, afterwards I'm like, oh, did I did I really express myself well enough there? Are there certain ways that we can empower ourselves? For me, yes. So you look the pediatrician in the eyes and you say, understand me, I am very concerned about this. Okay. And when we make an assessment, if you don't agree, tell us. Yeah, I am hard, still worried important. about this. I don't feel better. Okay. That to me signals, even if I think the child is doing well, mom is really worried about this. And for me, that's concerning because mm-hmm. mom knows kid best. It doesn't necessarily mean mom or dad are right medically, but it's important. And so I tend to say at that point, we talk further, hey, let's come back for a specific visit for this. Let's follow up more closely or do you want to go for, um, or do you want a referral? Is that what you're looking for? Meaning, that's important to know. Mm-hmm. I won't feel better until I get this assessment for whatever reason. And if that's the case, a lot of times I will, I will refer because you know what? Parents, your comfort level and you knowing an answer is oftentimes valuable. Yeah. If it's not going to hurt the child, I do not... My best interest and any pediatrician's best interest should be the child. And if something is not going to hurt the child, then I'm for it. And sometimes that means a referral. It sounds like you have to be really comfortable and feel safe with your pediatrician. As a parent, it's hard to bring up things about our children that maybe worry us. Or So it sounds like having a pediatrician that you do feel comfortable with looking in the eye and saying, no, I don't feel better, is, is really important. Absolutely. Pediatricians should have a very high social acuity, but, you know, yes, talking to your pediatrician and finding that comfort level, and if you don't have it, then you find someone else. The main thing is that 
if you don't feel like you were heard to again repeat that, this is my concern. This is what I am worried about. I don't feel better based on what you told me. And going from there. And if you don't do that, it's tough to fully advocate for your kid. And if you feel like you're getting pushback from a pediatrician or anyone, this is your child. And you are in charge. And so you either seek a second opinion or you go elsewhere. Um, Luckily, have a really wonderful pediatrician and I did the same thing I brought up a concern and I was like you know what I'm not going to feel comfortable until I get a referral and she was like great it's yep. fantastic let's do that here's a list yep. yeah I, I had a concern with my son and my pediatrician said exactly what you said which was I think he's fine but if you need an occupational therapy referral I'd be happy to do it and I said let's wait let's see mm-hmm. and then I actually talked to my child's teacher who sees more of the fine motor activities than I do at home. And, and then I felt much better, much better and much more reassured. And what you, you just touched on is very important. A lot of this pediatricians or medical providers want to see in two different environments, especially yeah. mm-hmm. if it's a behavioral issue. A lot of kids will act up at home, act you know, behaviorally not what parents want to see. And then you go to school and the same thing's happening. Well, if the same thing's happening there, then that's concerning to Mm -hmm. a pediatrician. If it's only happening at home, it is still concerning, but that is showing me the kid's capable of not doing that. They feel comfortable enough to do it at home. And that's a dynamic that we can work on. Yeah. But two different environments is very important. Yeah, that makes sense. My, I was concerned because my son refused to cut or color at home. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to sit at the table, you know, all those things. And then I talked to his teacher and she said, oh, I mean, it's not his favorite thing to do, but he's happy to do it. And he does very well. Here's an example of his cutting. I was like, oh, okay, well, he clearly it's a work at home. Yeah, huh? clearly it's an environmental thing. <laughs> we don't cut and color at home, yeah. apparently. <laughs> but I think what you said is, is gathering information. Just like you mm-hmm. talk to your pediatrician, you talk to the teacher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you're not happy with what you're hearing you're not getting asked if you can observe that's That's great advice yeah Mm -hmm. that's great do you have any tips for parents to to find a pediatrician that they're comfortable with any sort of questions that they could ask and kind of a basis go to I don't know if all we certainly give interviews to new mothers but we also give interviews to parents who have kids who want to switch over so you make an appointment with the pediatrician you meet with them I think that's a great way to sit down look someone in the eye and Mm -hmm. say is this someone I feel comfortable with And you know pretty much right away. And if you happen to go to the appointment and that's not what's happening, then you know as well. As far as picking a pediatrician, certainly I I like our practice a lot. I'm with Boot and Saverick Pediatrics. One thing I love about our office, and you might see if other offices have this, we have a person in our office, an employee who specifically does referrals. That is all. So any referral that's needed, it's done in the office, and they either do it there or call you that there the next day. They look at your insurance and everything. We also have someone who's in charge of home health global management as well. So if your office has those resources, that's certainly helpful. Mm -hmm. And if you're at a practice who has um, some physicians who've been around for a long time, they build a long list of referrals. I like the idea of sitting down and interviewing because it's an important job. You don't want to just go to anyone. And even if you get a referral from a friend, I have some close friends that they love their pediatrician and their pediatrician goes at things one way. But for me personally, like that's not a fit for my personality I wouldn't be a absolutely. fit for that one. Yeah, you absolutely. Need, need to find a pediatrician who matches your philosophy. Yes, absolutely. So and that's different for everyone. Yep, it's <laughs> true. You touched on that as a pediatrician, if it's it, you're you're doing what's in the best interest of the child, and if it's not going to hurt the child, then that's that's what what your plan is. Mm-hmm. But what if parents come to you with concerns? 
or philosophies that you might feel like aren't in the best interest of the child. Um, how is that handled with a family? And Great question. So I'm very honest with my families and my parents. And I will tell you, first I will state my medical opinion and why mm-hmm. I think my medical advice is good for the health, whether it's a physical or emotional, of, of your child, who's my patient. Then I will talk about shift to the parents, why do you feel the way you feel? Because that's important too. Yeah. And then we see if there's a way to bridge that gap that's in the best interest of the child. Because me making a kid do something and the parents not wanting it is not... I want us all to be on the same page. Right. Yeah. So there's a back and forth. I think your doctor should be explaining to you why, not just saying this is the way it has to be mm-hmm. and you're wrong. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't hear that. Yeah. yeah. There's no right or wrong. There's just advocating for our kids. Yeah, that's great. So one of those things that we know many parents have strong feelings on would be vaccines or even for some Mm -hmm. parents, um, how they approach allergies and food allergies. Can you speak to a little bit about ways parents can specifically address those concerns with pediatricians? Yes, that's another great question. So certainly food allergies uh, is a a big topic. It's a developing field. Uh, Mm -hmm. There are specialists called allergists who are excellent. But, you know, there's a rising incidence of allergies to peanuts And the reason that uh, research is showing, I think uh, one of the main reasons for that is that in the past, we exposed kids to peanuts early. Mm -hmm. A very small subset of kids had reactions, sometimes deadly. We never want that. So there was a global, and you're seeing it, effort to remove peanuts, okay? Mm -hmm. And so kids are getting less exposed earlier. So for the kids that are allergic, that's wonderful. But for the kids that aren't, they're not getting exposed earlier and then building up immunity. Vaccines are very similar. So vaccines are a small amount of whatever the virus is that we're trying to prevent. Not enough to make a child sick, just enough for the body to recognize it and start fighting it. So it's sort of a little exposure earlier. Right now, there is a measles and mumps outbreak in America, okay, measles and mumps are, are in Texas in the immigration centers. And then there are measles outbreaks within New York, California, and Detroit. So parents who are vaccinating sometimes are concerned that, that other kid parents are not vaccinating their kids. And therefore, they're going to be exposed to that. And this is, you know, parents um, have a right to make decisions for their children. But just like everything else, when you own a home, you have a right to do what you want in your home. But if you're blaring music so loud that it's hurting someone else's ears next door and making them go deaf, that's not okay. And so if you don't vaccinate your kids, and this is just a general statement, and then they get something like measles and they're around other kids who aren't old enough to get that vaccine and they get it, well, that's not safe for the other child. So this outbreak of measles is heightening our awareness of how important vaccines are in preventing diseases because measles outbreaks had not been happening since we were doing vaccinations. My advice in my practice is I strongly, strongly recommend every parent vaccinate. If parents want to be on a delayed vaccination schedule, that means they give all the vaccines, but just not at the mandatory intervals. Mm -hmm. They want to spread them out. Our practice uh, will see those patients, but with the understanding that they are gonna get vaccinated. One important thing I wanna mention with the uh, measles in Texas, the American Association of Pediatrics has advised pediatricians that we can give the MMR vaccine early, measles, mumps, rubella. We can give it starting at six months. If there's a known exposure for a child or if a child is going to an area where measles is, whether it's travel or not. 
If that happens, we give it somewhere between six months to a year, and then we still give it at one in four years like regular. I think that's a really great explanation because there have been, within the past few years, differing ideas on things like, I mean, more parents are pushing back on wanting delayed vaccination. It feels like there's more vaccines, but it's because we're having better immunity and Mm -hmm. wanting to have preventative care. And same thing with um, allergies. Is right. that there? It makes more sense that way. Was there anything else that you think is important for parents to know in regards to pediatricians or your child's health and well-being? It's a good question. I think taking an active interest in your child's life is very important. Actively playing with your child's. For me, right now, the biggest challenge we're facing is phones, screen time, mm-hmm. tablets, phones. Those weren't available. I'm guessing to y'all and me when we were younger all the time. So we're outside playing, we're talking. If we're bored, we're doing imaginative play. We're thinking of stuff to do. We may be watching TV, but it was a very slow, non-stimulating thing. Now children and the schools are requiring, right? You need to know Mm -hmm. how to learn to type and do all this in school. But kids that are on their phones more than two hours a day, and I still think two hours is a lot, it is going to negatively impact their social development, and oftentimes their physical development. We are seeing delays in social skills because children are staring at phones all day. These phones are designed based off of slot machines to activate dopamine receptors. They are addicting. And it is part of life that we do it, but Mm -hmm. I want to make sure kids are still interacting, talking, playing, doing things that require verbal eye contact, social awareness. Otherwise, when you walk into a job interview one day, unless times have changed and you're sitting on your phone looking at your phone and the other person's looking at their phone and you're talking through the phones, you actually have to put down your phone, talk to someone, and understand social cues. Mm -hmm. And so that's the biggest challenge. I would urge parents to try to limit screen time. If you can't or you choose not to, I would advise doing a TV rather than a tablet and a tablet rather than an iPhone. The bigger, the less stimulation. And I didn't know that. Thank you. All right. There's one thing that we ask every guest, so we're going to put you on the spot for this one. We ask them for their best piece of advice. It can be generally life-related. It can be related to, I'm talking to pediatricians, whatever you give as your go-to elevator speech piece of advice. Well, this may be short, but it's a quote that I love, and I don't know who to attribute it to, but it says, be yourself, everybody else is already taken. And what I take from that is you, for each child, each parent, you are special. There's nobody else like you. And there's a big push we see on TV. There's a certain way to be this. No, the way you are is the best way to be and be yourself. And when you realize later in life and you start loving yourself, then you will see how other people will start loving you. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, great advice. Well, thank you so much for joining yes. us. We learned a lot. Thank this you. This was a privilege. Thank you so much, and thanks for all the great work you do at your school. Thank thanks. you. Thank you for listening to the Unbabbled Podcast. For more information on today's episode, including links to resources mentioned, please see our episode description. For more information on the Parish School, visit parishschool.org. If you're not already, don't forget to subscribe to the Unbabbled podcast on your app of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave a rating and review. A special thank you to Stig Daniels, Amy Tanner, and Amanda Arnold for all their hard work behind the scenes. Thanks again for listening.